I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Um, and now please join me in offering a very warm welcome to Sarah Thornton and Isaac Julian. Well, first of all, I want to thank this fantastic um, bookshop, London Review Bookshop, for hosting this event. And it's such a pleasure to do this event with Sarah on her book, Fed Free Artists and Free Acts, which I have to say is an absolutely amazing book. I mean, I'm not just saying it because I'm in it, but, you know, I've been a long-term fan of Sarah's writing. She's someone who shoots from the hip, who has been, in a way, so many extraordinary things. And I'm someone who actually knows her past, slightly. Because <laughs> um, Sarah is someone who I read in cultural studies. Um, she wrote amazing books on disco, on advertising. And in a way, I think there's, there's something quite amazing about Sarah, because I first met her um, when I first joined Victoria Murray Gallery, and in Victoria Mirror Gallery, it's a fantastic gallery, but, you know, you need someone who's able to write about art in a fashion which is critically engaged. And so Sarah, basically, I know, wrote something about my work for one of my first openings at Victoria Mirror Gallery, and I knew that nobody else in Victoria Mirror wrote it. It had to be Sarah, um, because it was so astute and so sensitive to my work, but also I think there's a way in which with Sarah, because, you know, Sarah is a very enigmatic character because she is someone who has, you know, PhD, of course, who's gone through cultural studies, who has gone through theory. She's, she's done that, you know, <laughs> and she's sort of come out the other end, right? And she's basically, in a way, decided that she's going to communicate her ideas in a fashion that will really, in a way, reach people. And that's not to turn her back on being an intellectual. It's really to say that there's a way in which, in writing, which I think Sarah is so excellent at, she's able to sort of convey information um, which you can't really get access to ordinarily. And this is the thing about some days, you know, in the art world, when it first came out. I mean, it was just extraordinary, it came out, of course, on the eve of the 2008 crash. You know, and the art world, of course, felt perhaps it was kind of seen in bed with its knickers down or something to that effect. You know, because Sarah was able to go in there in her trained 
in a way, I want to call it a kind of critical ethnography, but a kind of reflexive ethnography where you're able to sort of really dissect in this very delicate manner a kind of culture. And the art world is a culture now. And I think Some Days in the Art World was a book that basically made that statement about the art world that kind of, in a way, gave, set a light, you know, that this is not just, you know, artists milling around kind of being stupid you know that they act it's an industry it's a culture and i think there's a way in this book in 33 artists in free acts you know she in a way digs deeper you know and that digging is a digging that has an archival basis because reading the interview with ai Weiwei, i was so struck by, by those two chapters, the chapters when you visited him in Beijing and then after the arrest and then visiting him again. And there are things which I think you were able to communicate to us about Ai Weiwei, which I've, I haven't read anywhere. And time and time again, in the different chapters, there are these nuggets, these Foucauldian regimes of truth, you know, <laughs> which Sarah is able to sort of unpick and in a way share with a, a quite big audience. And, uh, you know, I think that kind of generosity in being able to, in a way, work so hard, it's so researched. You know, I mean, I admire Sarah's research because, I mean, I do lots of research myself, but I mean, Sarah's research, I mean, I mean she travels the whole globe. And in a sense, I think to understand the art world now, you probably do have to travel the whole globe, you know, because the art world isn't just London. I mean, of course, it happens to be Freeze Art Week, um, but it's sort of, well, let's say that the kind of international art world visits us for a few days. Literally, Sarah was working on this book for five years. F- five years. I mean, Sarah, I mean, how do you do it? You know, really, <laughs> you know, because it's just extraordinary. I mean, you know, to go from Beijing to Jeff Kuhn's studio, I call that sort of critical ethnography because. I haven't really read anybody else writing about art today that has this kind of self-reflexive position that you inhabit. Well, it's very hard to respond to all of that, I must say. Um, um, and thank you hugely. I, one thing to be said is not, not all the artists in the book are ha- as happy as Isaac to be in it. <laughs> um, uh, uh, actually, uh, you know, there was, you know, three of them definitely didn't want to be in it, and a couple of them don't like me very much. Um, but that makes it all the more interesting. Uh, access uh, is something hard won. I guess I was lucky enough to kind of be friendly with you over those years, partly through Victoria Miro. And there are a few other artists in the book like that. Grayson Perry, I've been quite friendly with over the years. But a lot of the artists I didn't meet until I went to interview them, uh, sometimes off the back of the research for the book. Sometimes also I was researching for The Economist at the same time. Um, And that opened some doors. But in a way, I think perhaps The Economist's position, I mean, it's one which in a way has been won by yourself in terms of the critical recognition of your work. And then, of course, I think if you're going to want to engage with certain artists, then having that position um, as a writer is important. Getting access to someone like Cindy Sherman, 
you know, is not that simple. I mean, she, I mean I'm mean, i in Cindy Sherman's gallery, Metro Pictures. I've known her for a long time, for 10 years. And, you know... I she mean, hates Cindy giving interviews. Hates it. And refused it for quite a few years. <laughs> um, and actually, she'd even read Seven Days in the Art World and liked it. But um, uh, the, some gallery assistant cut and paste her response, her refusal to see me into an email to me. And it said, oh, yeah, uh, I've read Seven Days in the Art World. I actually liked it, but I have no interest in talking to her. <laughs> you know, but um, then when she was under pressure to promote her Museum of Modern Art New York show, and that is off, you just have to be really, really patient at times. Um, uh, she condescended to see me and decided it wasn't so bad. And then uh, uh, saw me again in San Francisco when she was installing uh, that retrospective. So there, she's one of nine recurring characters in the book. Uh, along with Ai Weiwei and uh, Jeff Koons and Damien Hurst and Andrea Fraser and um, uh, the Dunham Simmons family, I'm Carol not- Dunham, a painter, Laurie Simmons, a photographer, and their daughters, Lena Dunham and Grace Dunham, Mauricio Catalan, Gabriel Roscoe, and I think that's it. I mean, actually, if that's nine. <laughs> everyone. I mean, anyway, the artists. Who a husband and wife, Carol and Laurie. Laurie. I mean, yeah. that is very interesting as a dynamic because, uh, I mean, in a way, what's different in this book in relationship to some days in the art world is that in a way you do have artists who are kind of, I mean, they're not all super iconic. And I thought to myself, why has Sarah interviewed those people really? <laughs> you know, I mean, I quite like their work, but I don't. I mean, they're not sort of like, you know, I don't kind of go, wow, I want to see that kind of painting by Mr. Dunn's. Um, but what? But it was so interesting because after I read your chapter, I thought, these people are really so interesting. And then I knew why you chose them because there was something about the way in which they kind of spoke about art and had this sort of maturity and reflection which was, and I thought, oh my God, they're really nice people. Well, and I talk about the book as being both curated and cast. Mm. So it's curated insofar as um, the art has to be relevant and interesting and often actually has to reflect on my themes of what is an artist and what are the artistic myths that hold any water today, which ones are absolutely rejected by these artists, which ones are they striving to embody, often unconsciously. So there's 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 a kind of curated aspect but there's also a casting aspect mm. and the casting very much had to do with what kind of people the they were whether they were willing to engage with my questions whether they had good answers for my questions mm. i mean one of my all-time favorite artists when i asked him what is an artist he said an artist makes art and i was like <laughs> okay next you know it really was not a goer and i realized and actually i i I, I'm slightly less interested in his work now, but um, but he he his discourse at ossified. He is actually his 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 work, you know, throughout many years has been really interesting. Perhaps not so interesting in the past ten, um, but what had really ossified was the way he talked about his work. Mm. He'd kind of developed a discourse about his work in the late seventies and mid, into the mid eighties. And then kind of stuck with it. And it was kind of a dead language. Mm. And and also just he, he was so close to my more sociological questions. And so 
yeah, he was on the cutting room floor. But there, there's a lot of really interesting, thoughtful artists also on the cutting room floor, which is part of what happens when you interview 130 artists for a book called 33 Artists in Three Acts. Well, I but, thought I was uh, on the cutting room floor once day. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. <laughs> no, and, and the thing is, in a way, I wouldn't have taken grievance. I just think, you know, a little bit like a filmmaker, if you're making a work... You, you do cast and you do, I mean, if you're making a documentary, you interview people before and if it doesn't work, I mean, it can spoil your film. I think one thing that differentiates my writing about uh, contemporary art from a lot of the writing about contemporary art is that I actually look beyond the frame. I mean, there's a very strong etiquette within the art world to only discuss the work and it's a very narrow definition of the work. My definition of an artist's work is everything they do and I look I, I walk into an artist's studio or go into their home or watch them installing in a museum or watch them giving an artist talk and I I just take I try to take in absolutely everything from their shoelaces uh, to their choice of specs uh, to the postcards on the studio wall on the bulletin board to like the state of their bathroom you know uh, <laughs> for a, a kind of symptomatic read of, of the whole character mm. and 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 the question what is an artist today I want, I'm wondering sometimes it is quite difficult I mean when you're talking to someone like Jeff Coons who you're trying to get a different sort of response. And from time to time, there's a slip where he kind of says something which is a little bit more revealing. Yes. I mean, he is a particularly slippery subject. <laughs> and um, But it seemed to me it was really important to include him in the book because he's so iconic and he, other artists bring him up so frequently as someone against whom they measure themselves. And he is, I, I, the book is divided into three acts. Act one is politics, act two is kinship, and act three is craft. And I put him in a, a, this act called politics, which is quite counterintuitive for a lot of art world people. They go, Jeff Koons has a politics? You know, he, he he's studiously avoids he depoliticizes everything he touches. You know, he 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 re doesn't want to talk about politics. He tries to uh, evacuate anything political from his work, and um, but for me, that was really kind of an important reading to uh, subject Jeff Koons and his work to I hate putting prepositions at the end of sentences, but anyway, can't edit myself quite. Um, and um, so it, it kind of teases out uh, a certain his version of neoliberalism, teases out mm. his relationship to oligarchs mm. and uh, princelings and um, kind of reveals a politics which for some is invisible. Mm. And um, it's through comparing and contrasting him with Ai Weiwei and, the, and other actually very politicized artists in that part of the book, Martha Rosler and Kutlug Adaman, mm. um, a, a legend in South America called Eugenio Ditborn and, and mm. things like that. that you know. um, so it's, it's kind of a, although Kuhn's has written about so much, this, mm. is, not, not, this is a very different reading of Kuhn's yes, to what you would find elsewhere. Absolutely. But Orozco was very interesting, wasn't he? Because, I mean, I didn't know that he led this kind of nomadic existence that, in a way, I'm the impetus to the work. And then, in a way, the nuances that you're able to sort of 
give us in relationship to his practice. I know you don't like that word, practice. Well, no, no, no. Uh, I, I love art world jargon. Um, and, I, and it's fun to unpack it. Um, no, I think you're uh, right, Orozco. actually. I think that is, you know, artist practice is a bit of a cliche. But I just thought with Orozco, he was so interesting. <laughs> I, mean, He's, I mean, Gabriel Orozco is Mexico's foremost artist. He's principally based in New York. He also spends a lot of time in Paris and also Mexico City and parts of Mexico. And he's the son of a communist muralist. He grew up in the artist community in Mexico City, a very a intensely intellectual and politicized art scene. He And then he left. Um, he's extremely intelligent and um, very versatile. Oh. I mean, in terms of the range of his practice. Oh. And he is the founder of a kind of school of art in Mexico City, which includes Absolutely. artists like Damien Ortega, who shows with White Cube here, uh, Gabriel Curry, Abraham Cruz Viega. He's, um, I mean, one of, he, he's a recurring character. He's the only artist who appears in in two acts mostly they're clustered in acts he appears in act one and act three and i actually use an illustration by him in the for the introduction which is a, a work called horses running endlessly which is a chessboard in which all of the pieces are knights and, you know, chess is a recurring theme in contemporary art. It goes back to Marcel Duchamp, who, um, as legend goes, quit making art to play chess. And the game that artists play, I mean, the, the chess is really the best metaphor, or a very good metaphor anyway, for uh, the game that artists have to play in the art world mm. um, and in their relations with curators, collectors, critics, and um, their fellow artists and 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 also the way they have to kind of deal with the the legacy of artistic identities and how they forge their own I thought also it was a little bit of a read on Rosalind Krauss because her new book um, which I'm getting its title has this hand kind of chess motif in it but in her book what I thought was so interesting is that she has this idea of, like, the goody-goody artists, I guess you could say, of modernism. Yeah. Well, the I mean, uh, the good boys and the, the bad boys and the good boys and the goody-two-shoes girls and all that kind of thing are a theme that runs through the book, as it must, because the enfant terrible is such a figure within art, and, um, and, and, and that is something that flows through the book in very concrete ways in relation to different artists. Mm-hmm. Um, Maurizio Catalan, I guess, more uh, than any other has tried to inhabit the role of the symbolic criminal. Um, and to the extent that he's, you know, stolen other people's shows <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, tried to pass them off as his own, although in a very thin way. So the theft is absolutely apparent mm-hmm. um, and has, uh, you know, I'm just on many, many different kinds of work that evoke that. Um, and the and the feminists in the book, you know, talk very much about um, how, uh, you know, it's really hard for a woman to... Sub- there are enough um, hurdles to a woman's credibility as an artist that, you know, adopting the role of a symbolic criminal is really not attractive. It, you know, it's a, it's a double negative. And, and, and actually, the, you know, there are... You know, you could think of someone like Tracy Emin, perhaps, who might adopt that role a little bit, but mm. not very persuasively. 
yeah. to my mind. And she's not in the book. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, in a way, in this book, that's where it's quite, it is different from some days in the art world because you have artists who are teachers who are not in New York or in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, they are sort of shown in Istanbul Biennale, maybe for the first time. And so there is a kind of, and I think with Martha Rossler and her, in, in that chapter, you just get this sense of the kind of the more critical artist, the artist that is involved in pedagogy and wants to communicate and make work in a slightly different manner to, say, a Coons or even an Ai Weiwei. Well, uh, it was, uh, you know, most of the artists in the book have high recognition somewhere, if their home nation or like South America, maybe not not household names here in London. Uh, but it was really important to me to include um, artists who don't make a living from their work because that is so much uh, the situation of most artists today. And so in each act, there's an artist who teaches and um, they were all chosen very, I mean, then the representativeness of them becomes an issue perhaps, but they were all chosen because they did work about being an artist in Mm -hmm. some way, shape or form, including um, the cover of the book, which is an artist called Tammy Ray Carland, who is the uh, professor of photography at the California College of the Arts. And this is a self-portrait um, and she's done other works, right, but it, right. it seems to me to evoke a lot of the ancillary expectations that befall artists nowadays, the pressure to speak, to perform, to entertain, uh, the fact that their, uh, identity is often a really important, uh, backstory to the oeuvre that can give it salience and take it beyond the borders of the art world, mm. that kind of thing. And, of course, the way artists are trained nowadays, because the crit class is uh, so much a part of art school training. And the crit is when the artist sits, at, for those of you who haven't read Seven Days in the Art World, which has a whole chapter called the crit, uh, is, 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 is that moment when they, they sit in front of their newly made work and defend it in front of their peers, which is often a kind of traumatizing experience, especially when artists... Uh, you know, partly became artists because they preferred to express themselves visually. And then all of a sudden, the big test is that they have to defend work verbally, um, which is where you get into art speak and yes. how and how, you know, how important it can be to pe- for people to cling to it. Should we read a little bit? Because we were going to yeah, read. Yeah, let's read a little. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we were going to read from Isaac's scene so that... Um, Well, we're going to try to do it. We haven't practiced. We're in London, uh, in the city, in the midst of a a shoot. He's He's in the middle of making his most recent work called Playtime. Stand by, bellows the first AD. Like the other 20 crew on the set, he's dressed entirely in black and wears shoes that don't squeak so he can move around quietly. They're working on the empty 30th floor of Heron Tower in the heart of the city of London. Advertised as a, quote, advanced business life environment, the new skyscraper has floor-to-ceiling windows that offer commanding views of the metropolis. Changing light conditions have been one of the day's biggest battles for the DOP, her gaffer, and his three sparks. Okay, ready and action. (laughs) Says Isaac Julian. (laughs) From behind. 
behind a black draped enclosure where two monitors relay the live feeds, the area the film industry calls the video village. It reminds me of the Wizard of Oz when the mysterious supreme wizard is revealed as just a man behind a curtain. Thanks, Guy. That's good. That's excellent says Julian as he emerges. The artist, the eldest of five children, took care of his siblings while his parents worked nights. His warm, patient tone suggests that mothering was his introduction to management. I thought it was quite nice when Conan happened to walk out of frame and back, says Julian to Nina Kelgren, the DOP, with whom he's worked for over 20 years. Among other films, Kelgren shot Looking for Langston, Julian's celebrated meditation on gay desire, which is considered one of the founding pictures of queer cinema. Should we stop for a minute? Yes. Um, and, uh, I mean, you know, the book does get into the nitty-gritty of how artists make work and how they're dependent on others to make their work. You know, one of the um, uh, miscomprehensions or one of the the uh, stubborn refusals to understand contemporary art is that, oh, the artists didn't make it themselves. Well, of course not. Contemporary artists are architects of their of They're like film directors. They're, they're, they're not craftsmen, actually. They rely on a lot of other craftsmen. And one of the interesting things in this chapter is the huge number of people um, involved in the making of this film. And Far perhaps too many. Yeah, I think 150 in all across five different shoots or and locations. But tell me, do you do you think I'm right in saying that mothering is your form of management? Oh, absolutely, yes. Because you know, <clears throat> being the eldest and being able to take responsibility when you don't want to um, is the key to being able to work with lots of people when you don't want to as well. <laughs> and um, so I think directing the responsibility that comes along with that, it's very connected to being the eldest and having too many responsibilities when you're younger, because um, as the eldest of five, of course. It's all in that book over there, um, revealed by Cynthia Rose over there. <laughs> and um, so the secret's out in relationship to management and directing. But there's so many secrets that come out in this book Sarah. Yes. Yeah. In so. in your scene? Well, or in, in others? Scene, well, in others, yeah. Uh-huh, so. uh-huh. Any come to mind? Which ones are you well, thinking Well, I was about? really very interested in this sort of moment where Ai Weiwei really confesses to why he makes his work and, and that whole revisitation after he's been imprisoned. I mean, his demeanour is completely changed, really. Um, I... Ai Weiwei, I guess, has he has he has five scenes perhaps in the book, but one he's not present because I interviewed him here um, during the installation of his Turbine Hall Sunflower Seeds work, and he gave me a really commanding interview. I, I was so persuaded by him. He, the The force of his conviction and confidence was something else. And one thing I'm really interested in is artistic self belief, because contemporary art is about a consensus of belief in an artist and self-belief is where it starts. And then I booked in to see him and was uh, had my flight to Beijing and everything, and he got put in prison just before I got there. And so I had tea with his wife, Lu Qing, and at this point, he, he really had disappeared. Nobody knew where, where he was. She had not been informed. His mother didn't know where he was. He was just gone. Mm-hmm. And um, And then... I come back 
uh, like another a year later mm. after he's been released and visit him again and he is he is he is a changed man actually mm. and i was one of the first people he actually spoke to about first journalists i should say first writers uh that he spoke to on about his incarceration mm. and he was still traumatized by the psychological torture mm. um and you know one of the things that um his interrogate there were only about 50 questions that they asked him over and over again you know uh, over the that. period but one of them was you know what do what do you do and he initially started saying well i'm an artist and they would you know pound the table and say you're not an artist you're just an art worker <laughs> you know the kind of like absurdity of it in the context so of course he just you know this is a battle i'm not going to fight Let, you know okay he learned you know after a week i'm i'm an art worker uh oh. but just this kind of um you know and then to be surrounded by people and things like that i mean one of the i really there are many many different different definitions of what is an artist in the book and um uh, when i asked ai weiwei what is an artist in our first during our first encounter when he mm. was before he'd had the terrible experience in prison he, uh you know and he was in the practice of giving three interviews a day um he initially of course didn't have an answer because it's not an easy question and not one you usually get asked but he told the story of his father who had been a painter who'd had to abandon painting while in prison because he mm. couldn't have access to his materials became a poet then felt that was you know when he fell afoul of the Chiang Kai-shek government then he later fell afoul of the Mao government mm. was exiled for 18 years to a remote province of China where he cleaned latrines and that's the situation in which Ai Weiwei grew up and Ai Weiwei kept discussing talking to me about this and talked about his father as an enemy of the state and so at the end of it I said so you told me this very interesting story in response to my question what is an artist does that do you think an artist is the enemy of the state and he said an artist is an enemy of general sensibilities <laughs> which is which is a, a poetic and also very familiar definition of an artist is the is the classic avant-garde definition of an artist and oh. it's interesting in in london in the west in western europe america the avant-garde is dead it, it you can't really occupy that position anymore because in a pluralistic culture that embraces difference and shock oh. how can you be avant-garde communist country with no freedom of speech strangely you you know it's still salient and 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 mm. and, and 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 i think i will wait for many people embodies a kind of romantic avant-garde but he, but it's real too at the same time as 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 kind of fulfilling a romantic myth to some degree i mean there is quite a lot of trust the artists have participated in their collaborations with you in sharing their stories and uh that is true actually i mean i'm really grateful to the artists who are in the book for the degree to which they were willing to let me poke around <laughs> in their brains and 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 uh, because i do see, for the most part most of the artists in the book are collaborators and Um uh, there are a few people who are antagonistic and that adds interest. Um you know Damian Hirst hates me but, but you know uh that becomes kind of part of the plot line of act 3. Um he didn't like something I wrote in the economist about his market and if there's one way to 
get to Damien is to discuss his market <laughs> in great factual accuracy, but uh, <laughs> ruthless accuracy. But anyway, um, yeah, yeah, I think that um, there, a lot of the artists in the book are kind of fearless mm. in a certain kind of way and and believe I, so much in what they're doing that that they're willing to be open. And um, and that's certainly probably what distinguishes the ones who aren't in the book from the ones who are on the cutting room floor from the ones who are in the book with the degree to which they were willing to make themselves vulnerable. I mean, Orozco, I think, um, who read an early draft of the book, um, said said something funny, which was um, I think he said we're all portrayed in our underwear, except at least some of us get to keep our socks on. <laughs> um, it's yeah. very interesting, isn't it? Because in a way, in your own economist and the writing that you did in Art Forum, I mean, and even when I was making my film on Capital, which was about the art world and really understanding the market, but, you know, I turned to Sarah, you know, because Sarah is like a sort of an authority, really. She could analyse what was going on in auctions and give a quite astute reading, you know, in a way that was not really so accessible. I don't know, maybe the experience of that and becoming so apt at that maybe made you feel, right, okay, I don't want to include that kind of world in this book. When I finished Seven Days in the Art World, there were two things I really wanted to understand more. One was the art market and one was artists. So I started writing for The Economist, became their chief writer on contemporary art, and covered the market a lot. I wrote 65 articles for them. And at the same time, I started researching this book on artists. So I, the nitty-gritty of like the art market, I feel like I kind of fulfilled that in journalism. Um, and, and, and looking at artists... I fulfilled here. I think that um, in Act 3, Craft, I actually include artist decisions about their market under the rubric of craft. Craft for me is all the skills you need to be a, a real artist in the real world today. And that does include who you choose to be your dealer. Who you know Whether you're going to make it in an edition of six or three, um, will you make 10 red paintings or only two? You know, all of those kinds of decisions are integral to uh, the way an artist interacts with their market. Absolutely. And the market does very much become a theme because my key antagonists in that part of the book are Damien Hirst and Andrea Fraser, who's a feminist performance artist who, for me, is very much the anti-Hirst. Um, she does not make objects. She, um, you know, one of her artworks is actually an article called Le 1% C'est Moi, which is a <laughs> critique of the collecting classes um, and their relationship to um, the economic crisis. And so she really goes through... <coughs> Um, uh, initially, she was going to write it for up for Art Forum in relation to the board of trustees at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. They refused to publish it, interestingly. Um, and then she kind of revisited it and worked with Art News's top 100 collectors and kind of went through the list. 
having done research on them all mm. and and is very concerned about the fact that the gap between the rich and the poor as it widens actually is good for the art market and there are economists who've fleshed that out um and f- you know found different statistical means of proving it so she uh and then there are different moments with other artists like Yoyoi Kasama and Katie Nolan who and Beatriz Mahales they're all three of them in Act Three Craft. Uh, Katie Noland is the most expensive living artist in the world. Living, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, little known, very intriguing. One of the things that she's done remarkably is that um, uh, there's a I don't know, there's a there's a law in the U.S. It's the Visual Artists Act? I don't know. I can't. It's in there. Um, But basically, it means that if an artwork has been damaged in in some way, an artist can revoke their authorship of it and um, uh, if it might damage their reputation. So one of her pieces was coming up for auction at Sotheby's, estimated between $2,000 and $300,000. She revoked her name, and then the consigner of the work decided to sue her. So it became this kind of legal case. She actually was able to take her name off of it. And, of course, the work went from being worth $300,000 to being worth absolutely nothing. And it's actually a good illustration of the power of the artist's brand and the power of authorship. And so, you know, these works don't circulate anonymously. Um, All the way through Yoyoi Kusama, who's the, the female artist with the highest volume, um, at auction. And Beatriz Mahalas, interestingly, Brazil is the only country in the world where the most expensive living artist is female because there's a massive discrepancy um, in most countries between Gerhard Richter, at, who sells for 30 million, and the, you know, Rosemary Truckle, who sells for under a million, which is the typical mm-hmm. discrepancy. It's, it's worse than banking. But in a way, I think this is one of the things in terms of writing about art, you know, for the economists or for art forum, where you're concentrated on the market. And then, but um, I and sorry, there was one more thing I wanted to say about that, and that was I was it was very self conscious of me to leave the market till the end of the book, because I actually think that um, in terms of the general public, the only way that an artist can be written about outside the art section is to command a high price at auction or to die. And and I'm and the way the market has become the filter through which people learn about art is not great for art. And so to start with politics and then go for a theme like kinship, which is something that's extremely accessible to us all and extremely relevant to us all. And actually, there's so much interesting artwork dealing with issues of family and love and creative collaboration and things like that. And to leave the market to the end was was hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Uh, a very self-conscious decision. Mm. Should we open it up? 
questions from you. Yeah, so maybe we should open this up now. Because I've been, as it were, talking, maybe... I have a sort of question that is sort of, it's sort of related to this thing about market. There's something in the garden today about, isn't it wonderful, freezes here, but we can, we can all participate in, in contemporary arts, so the galleries, and we can get into freeze in the evening for £15, apparently. It's a bit more expensive you go in the day. And um, I'm only halfway through the book, so I haven't got to the bit about market. Um, and I think I came to it as a sort of sceptic as to whether I was going to find anything of interest and value to me, because I thought, you know, modern artists, they're, they're locked in this self-referential world, and they're pandering to this global elite, and what have they got to say about us? And I think partly because you're going in and you're looking, you're, 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 you're telling us about some of the insecurities of these artists. So I began to relate to them as human beings, and I also became much more convinced than I had been before that they were saying something relevant and significant about our times. And so I'm, I'm really sort of struggling with that paradox. It's, well, it's relevant. It's relevant to my world, but is it? And, and another part of it for me is the whole global light, because, because you open the book and there's this map. These are all the places that Sarah's been to, you know, several times, you know. And, and I don't know whether it's partly... And, of course, you know, of course, you know, Ai Weiwei, China, I mean, that's all... But actually, you have a sense that they're in one world. Not, not, you, you, you don't get a sense of them being rooted in their place. Because you, 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 they, they appear in different places. And, and, and I'm, not, I'm just asking, what was the question when you asked all of that, you know? Well, is it, for, for those of us who aren't part of the 1%, you know, why is it relevant? Why is it meaningful? Why do we connect to it? I, I mean, I think that... Um, well, you were telling me earlier, James is a friend, and that's why he's read the book, even though he's not interested in contemporary art. Um, uh, and, and he picked it up immediately when it went on sale 10 days ago. Or, um, and uh, you were telling me that you did, you did feel like, you know, starting with politics, it does make it relevant, doesn't it? And, and a lot of those artists, uh, for the most part, are not targeting the 1% with their work. And they're finding other means of making a living through teaching or um, kind of museum and biennial and residency funding as opposed to selling objects. Um, and they're... You know, the, the, there are object makers, and I actually happen to love artistic objects, um, but I'm a big fan of performance and film and um, uh, conceptual art that's an idea that kind of circulates through word of mouth even. I think it's just because the 1% are the big buyers doesn't mean that art is only for them. And I would think I think that most artists don't see the one percent as their audience. I guess absolutely. Hi. Um, so on the topic of politics and art, um, I haven't read the book, but I'm very interested in the sections on Ai Weiwei, and very interested in what you said about um, him being a part of the avant-garde, which um, in the West is you know considered dead because um, because you know. It's you know has been co-opted into the market, or you know now avant-garde practices are considered fashionable, etc. But in China, it still has a political impact. And I guess I just wonder, um, since Ai Weiwei, I think, is someone who's mainly sort of discussed and whose work is shown mainly in the West, um, how do you think his avant-garde practices, you know, sort of impact China within, you know? I think you could see an impact in Hong Kong. Um, you know, I think he's very much a figure for uh, of great importance in Hong Kong for the democracy movement there. 
where 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 he is known and can't be you know erased from the airwaves in the same way that he can on the mainland yeah i i guess i just um i'm kind of curious about do you think that the trajectory of the avant-garde in china is sort of following in the footsteps of the west or is it taking like its own trajectory um i don't know if i mean for me he's embodying avant-garde myths of the artist um which aren't just bogus you know um so i don't know if i'd identify a kind of group of avant-garde artists i think i wait i think there are other uh obviously other democracy advocates and other artists who are not making conventional paintings and things like that in on the mainland but um I'd, I'm not quite sure. I mean, there's another Chinese artist in the book, Zheng Fanzi, who's kind of the Jeff Koons of uh, uh, China. And he is a huge market player and commands high prices. And he, interestingly, has a studio just walkable around the corner from Ai Weiwei's. And, um, you know, he, it seems to be embodying a very modernist myth uh, uh, you, he sits there smoking a Cohiba cigar, and the he's, description's he, amazing. <laughs> amazing. You know, his studio is a complete trip. It's very yeah. theatrical. Um, he's got an array, almost like his own little art history, <clears throat> uh, of kind of validating himself as an artist. Some mm. prize paintings, and then a painting of one of his chief patrons, and then strangely a painting of Karl Marx. They're all in this studio with um, Mendelssohn playing, and a Persian carpet, and Chinese antiquities, and and then strangely he's smoking a Cohiba cigar and lights it with a light a giant lighter in the shape of a gun. <laughs> so so and 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 actually the 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 kind of myth that he seems to be embodying. I mean, he sees himself very much in a kind of nineteenth century mode as the artist craftsman painter, you know, and and the and this, and the whole kind of do it yourself. Uh, tradition is is um, the one that he's in, he's um, most interested in, and um, so it's kind of like uh, uh, Ai Weiwei is unusual in China insofar as he's adopted a Marcel Duchampian mode of making art. Um, insofar as he uses ready-mades and he um, is part of this larger landscape, which is true here about the artist having like a godlike power to say something is art, to designate something as art, which is a power you need if you're going to use a ready-made object rather than something you've custom-made yourself. That Duchamp is, is not prevalent in China at all. And and mo and for the most part, it is a modernist tradition. A kind of maybe Picasso would be the kind of relevant heir to a lot of artists, uh, like the mainstream of artists on the mainland who are making a very good living from their mostly painting, um, to a much lesser extent, sub mm. uh, sculpture. Does well, that make? He's a sort of ambivalent figure, isn't he? Because you know the way that he's received in the West and. And then the way that he is read in China, and then I guess you know if you think about the seventies, I mean people are very well almost fascistic about the seventies because it's before the art market becomes mm -hmm. a kind of art market in China, and therefore the kind of work that 
you know, Chinese artists are involved in terms of performances and it's underground and it's not, do you know what I mean? In a way, it's very much, you could say, art or conversations for themselves. But I think people see that as a, the, rele- the kind of uncontaminated expression of contemporary art in China. And I think that someone I way wants to make a link to that as well, you know, I think in his practice. I mean, I I interviewed a lot of artists in China, and a lot of them do see Ai Weiwei as a Westerner. Mm. He did spend 12 years in New York. Mm. And um, the whole idea of freedom of speech, they think, is a Western idea. Mm. And actually, they don't seem to think that they need it. That was the most, that was the dominant. Mm. I I interviewed, I don't know, probably like 20, like between... 15 and 20 Chinese artists and, and, um, uh, freedom of speech is not funnily enough. They love being an artist because it gives them a lot of freedom, but freedom of speech doesn't seem to be one of the freedoms. That's a priority. There's another question or two back here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was over a hundred people that you said who ended up in the cutting on yes. the cutting room floor that you interviewed. And I wondered if, in a, if they took that as a kind of artistic rejection and if, if they came back to you. And if so, how did they come back to you? It's, it's, been, a, it's been awkward and difficult in some instances. Um, some people are very understanding. They understand, well, it's, it's like being a curator of a group show. So, you know, you're doing a group show on a particular theme and you might do 100 studio visits, but you can only put 20 artists in the show. So a lot of artists understand that my editorial situation was similar to a curator's in those circumstances. But I did have a few people who were upset with me. And that's really, really awkward and difficult. And, uh, you know, there were people I interviewed for seven days in the art world uh, that who never were mentioned in seven days in the art world, but actually they appear here. Um, and like Isaac, I interviewed you for seven days in the art world, but actually, and I think there's a passing mention, you know, but, but he's not a featured artist in the book. Um, uh, you know, Massimiliano Joni, who's actually a curator who works very closely with, um, a Mauricio Catalan because he's actually performed the role of Catalan and pretended to be Catalan in different circumstances and actually kind of elaborated the discourse and language of Catalan. So he's in the book and I interviewed him for seven days and he didn't appear there. So, um, I never see any research as lost and I have no idea what the next one would be. I mean, a book with totally different themes. I mean, one thing I did, the mean year of birth of the artist in this book is 1960. I, was really interested in artists who had at least 20 years experience being an artist. And I did interview some younger artists initially, but decided that they didn't fit because I couldn't make the large, the cross-cultural comparisons. I mean, one of the reasons Ai Weiwei and Jeff Koons are such a great comparison is because they're the same age. They're, you know, they're within 18 months of each other. Um, And uh, funnily enough, Andrea Fraser and Damien Hurst are both born in 1965. You know, it it made it easier to um, compare and contrast the artists, which was very much a goal because so often artists are over-individuated and only treated in monographs and only profiled and never talk about each other. And I I try to create as much dialogue between them in that sense. 
Hi, um, thank you very much. Uh, you mentioned perhaps it was just a passing comment, but you said um, about how the market today is, or the art market specifically, is so um, determining in what you're doing. And then you said, well, what's the point? So I wondered, in, in response to that, especially for you, Isaac, I mean, what is the point of being an artist today in the West? If, if there is this kind of fetishized idea of what it is to be an avant-garde avant artist, if you somehow require a despotic government, I, I feel like some artists here are like, if only I had, you know, a, a despot, then I'd be a celebrated <laughs> avant-garde well, artist. So, I mean, but what do you think your, you know, to put it bluntly, what, I mean, what do you think your role is, you know, in the West as an artist? And, and firmly entrenched in, in a very um, powerful and invasive, in many ways, art market. Okay, he's really putting you on the spot. <laughs> let me, let me give you... Do, do you want a moment to, to think about your answer, or do you want to dive right in? <laughs> no, I mean, I think... Look, I mean, it's a fair question. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's a good question. I think it, there's all kinds of reasons why, why I make work. It's sort of... The, is it has a very long... It has a bit of a long trajectory. It's a bit longer, too, so it could be a bit boring. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's to do, you know, with a lot of the kind of political scenarios that one encounters and you feel that you should make a piece of work that sort of would somehow encounter things, but maybe not in the way that the news would do it or feature film would do it or do you see what I mean? So there's a way in which you want to create a dialogue, but I think there's also the question of aesthetics, what kind of aesthetics you want to develop today um, and that encounter which is quite different from the ways that we ordinarily see things because we're quite conditioned to see things a particular sort of way and I think that's what's fantastic in a way about Sarah's book is that she's revealing these kind of ways of the artists are working and then at the same time drawing our attention to a, a set of different questions which are not always posed in a climate where, you know, in a way we're very stereotyped. I, I think um, like different artists would answer that question in very different ways. The, one of the things that is so wonderful about the artist's role is the degree to which it can be customized, you know, you're not actually in service like, you know, a barrister or a or a or an accountant. You're not in service to another in the same way. And that artists can the most interesting artists are customizing the role of the artist to such an incredible degree that um, uh, that it becomes very distinctive and 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 different. Um, and so anyone who's kind of stereotypically inhabiting a role is actually not really making a commanding performance. You know what I mean? There, it, and, and it's all of a piece too. I mean, the, you know, in is jargon really the performativity of an art being an artist. I think that's Judith Butler or something. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, the the work is part of the communication process, but it's the 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 whole thing wrapped up together. So you can find, like you know, for instance, Wangeshi Mutu, who's a Kenyan-born artist, currently based in Brooklyn. Uh, there's actually no word for artist in her mother tongue, Kikuyu. The closest equivalent is magician. 
but for and so she sees contemporary art as very much like a foreign import and something that is part of her dialogue as someone who kind of came and did A-levels in the UK and then eventually went to university in the US. And um, when push comes to shove, she sees her role as the artist, uh, she sees her role as an artist as being that of a tattletale, someone who tells the family secrets, someone who, you know, and and, and it's interesting because her work is very much um, in the realm of the politics of beauty she kind of creates through collage these unusual hybridic hybridic kind of female but possibly cyborgish is half animal creations at which for her very much about um race and beauty and 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 have a political angle um so you know, there are many, many different definitions of being an artist and many uh, roles <coughs> out there. And the thing about artists is they're not stepping into a role that's already scripted. They're writing their own, at least the good ones. And also there is a convincing performance as opposed to kind of a cliched, stereotypical one that feels like old hat. Those are the metaphors that work for me, given the book. Um. So I have a question that's not about art, but more about method. Um, and um, so I'm going to come out of the closet as a Sarah Thornton fanboy. Um, <laughs> I read your stuff like Isaac and cultural studies when I was in graduate school. And um, I just have a question about how do you, if you have any advice for um, translating sort of highfalutin theory for a popular audience, especially for younger scholars. Thank you. Um, uh, well, it's really interesting, actually, because um, my PhD was published as a book called Club Cultures, and um, I think it's pretty readable for an academic book. Um, it sold well amongst undergraduates. Um, but when I taught full-time at Sussex, there were certain factions, let's say, at the university who kind of looked down their nose at me because it was rather too readable. You know, there is... Um, you know, the academic hierarchies um, reward difficulty. Sometimes that difficulty is, is, is actually kind of like rearranging jargon dex chairs on the Titanic going nowhere. Um, and, and other times, you know, there's a real reason to coin terms and use terms and that kind of thing. Um, I, I love researching and writing uh, so much that I eventually left academe, <laughs> partly because I didn't have enough time to research. Um, and uh, because I do like writing in a more engaging way. And jargon is actually a form of cliche, basically. Um, and um, it still was quite hard to abandon it because you adopt it and you don't realize you're using it. And the only way that I got rid of it was through being writing journalism and being edited. Um, it took quite a few years leading up to seven days in the art world. And then even when I was at the economist after having finished that book, there would still be bits of jargon that would creep in. And Fiametta Rocco, my editor, would like, you know, ruthless, you know, um, and and things I didn't even think were jargon, like signature style or something like that. 
you know, an artist's signature. Uh, no, no, no. So, um, there are quite some fans of those editors, aren't they? <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's a great discipline. We have had an experience with that. I mean, The Economist has a well-educated, intelligent readership, but, you know, they don't necessarily know anything about art. And actually, with when it comes to art, I'd say they're probably on the conservative side, you know, a bit more into modernist work. Bit, I always think of you know, Picasso people as opposed to Duchamp people. Um... And I realized that partly through writing a piece about Duchamp's urinals um, for them on one occasion and looking at the reader's comments on the web and going, oh, boy. Um, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, I like to think I research like an academic but write like a reporter, basically. Um, because I do, like, the, the, the amount of research behind this is PhD times three, really, Basically, I mean, you could you could interview fifty artists for your doctorate, <laughs> um, and but I'm in a more privileged position where it's easier for me to get access. Um, partly because Seven Days in the Art World was well read in the art world, and people knew where I was coming from, and that helped uh, in with trust. And also, then sometimes to prize open the difficult ones with an Economist article the promise of, you know, six million readers or whatever. I don't know if that answered your question, but <laughs> it was a start. <laughs> oh, the, the big drag about The Economist, of course, is you lose your byline and you become invisible and people don't even know. You can be at a dinner party and somebody is telling you about something. They, they, you don't even say they'd read it. They just start telling you about, like, Gerhard Richter's market. And you're like... You read that in The Economist this week, didn't you? Yeah, I, I researched that for a month. <laughs> the, uh... Going into Freeze Week and Freeze London and Freeze Masters, uh, if you give me advice of how you read that um, or how we should read it, sometimes one goes in there and you see things of incredible beauty and other times you think it's a huge con game. And sometimes you, uh, you think it's the center of the world this week anyway in the art world, and other times you think it actually has no relevance to the production of art by artists. I mean, I, um, in, in Seven Days in the Art World, Charles Garino, who's one of the publishers of Art Forum, says that, um, you know, you can't believe in 95% of contemporary art. Um, and I do, when I go into the Freeze Art Fair, I'm just looking for that 5% of things that really capture my interest. And some, and I, and so I would say at an art fair and particularly of new young art, 5% is really great, you know, and, and, and those five things can be super meaningful and wonderful and you want to know those artists' names and find out more about them and, and that kind of thing. So from just a sheer looking at art point of view, that, that's how I take it. 5% is great. From a networking point of view, Freeze is very important for the art world. And I think a lot of, um, especially younger artists, see showing at Freeze as a, as a mark of distinction. You know, they can be shown in their local gallery in Greece or I'm trying to think of a small town that doesn't have a lot of footfall. But, you know, there are galleries in Latvia. There be, you know, I don't know if there's a Latvian gallery in, uh, at Freeze, but there may be. And, um, you know, uh, to show at Freeze is a big event. Yeah, and pace yourself and don't drink too much. <laughs> um, I'm interested in uh, the little things of what's 
tricked you the most about maybe it was an amulet of an artist or maybe it was just a habit or a ritual that that artist would have in the studio what is it the most amazing thing that or maybe the weirdest thing that you encountered throughout this process i mean there are so many weird and wonderful things actually i mean it's i'm kind oddly intrigued by the things people artists wear around their neck <laughs> they are visual artists after all and they're very highly sensitive um when i met katie nolan she had a red plastic teddy bear around her neck And strangely, she comes in the book right after Grayson Perry, who's uh, one of the tropes in his work is his childhood teddy bear, Alan Measles, who he discusses as a transitional object. And transitional objects are actually a theme in that part of the book because you could see ready-mades. One could argue, and it has been argued, that the teddy bear is the original ready-made. Um, when a child... Uh, it's kind of complicated and it's hard to sum up. Andrea Fraser does it best, actually. But um, so basically, um, one of the fantasies that artists have uh, are fantasies of omnipotence, which is something a child, a baby has as well. The fantasy that they are the center of the universe. And it comes as a kind of narcissistic insult when they learn that they're not the center of the universe and that the things they create you know, that they haven't created the universe, that they're, they're part of it. Um, and um, so a teddy bear can become a very important symbolic object in a child's universe in the way that an art object can become an adult, an adult's universe. So the teddy bear, when I saw her wearing a red plastic teddy bear half after having Grayson, and actually not long after having interviewed Grayson Perry, I, I, I felt, you know, you can't make that stuff up. It's so great. <laughs> Yeah, so there, I can't really give you... It's, that's too tough a question. I mean, I, I'm a details person. I really... My PhD supervisor, when I was learning how to be an ethnographer, he said, an ethnographer has a novelist eye for detail. And so I take pictures. I, 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 I take pictures of everything. Um, I tape record almost all the time, very occasionally, if I'm on the run or if it's a follow-up interview or if I have a particularly paranoid artist. And uh, I won't, but I just kind of accumulate and accumulate and accumulate so I can go back to it and study my documentation so that I can pull out the things that are most salient. And um, you can't do that in an interview situation because you really have to concentrate on what they're saying and what you want your next question to be, especially if they're slippery. So, you know, did they answer the question and like, you know, really have to be t steps ahead of them. And it's funny because I um, was having a conversation with an art historian friend of mine uh, last week, and, and she told me she just took notes. It's like, you can't just take notes. You've got to get them tape recorded. You know what I mean? And also I'm really interested in the texture of people's speech, and, and, and um, notes are just not good enough. I mean, I will also take notes, but my notes are the things that I can't, take a picture of and then I can't record they're the other thoughts so I actually have like three streams of of um, research material to draw from when I'm writing up the scene I am like a super voracious hungry researcher I, I it's a little manic or obsessive compulsive or something I don't know <laughs> 
sound like an artist to me, so <laughs> you very much do. I I take inspiration. <laughs> I take inspiration, and I and I identify with a lot of artists, but not all of them. <laughs> There's one question at the back. Well, you you mentioned um, the curator of the next Venice Biennale. Um, going back to something that you were talking about early on um, in the evening uh, regarding sort of market practices in general. Um, my question is sort of silly and simple too, um, but would you, would you identify any sort of general trend in, in the sort of um, marketability of, of um, politically influenced art uh, of the past 10 or 15 years as opposed to um, I mean, say, say minimalism, or, or you know, things uh, being done in the seventies in response to sort of the the critique of the, of the, the museum and gallery structure. There, um, there's a uh, a, a, dis a very strong relationship between. Um, and sometimes a negative relationship between politics and the market. So the market is keen to absorb certain kinds of politics, but not others. Class does not go down well, mm -hmm. and any critique of capitalism is not a go area. But, mm -hmm. um, as you can well imagine, stuff that goes over really well is anything that looks very pro-capitalism, like Andreas Skursky's pictures of stock exchanges, for example, or Warhol dollar bill signs. That you know, sells incredibly well, not surprising. Uh, interestingly, uh, kind of softer forms of feminism sell fine, not, you know, not too much of a problem. Um, I think, interestingly, um, there was work that dealt with race probably was very, very disadvantaged in the ma marketplace strangely until kind of recently and i don't know if it's just this week or the 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 the, uh, the potential of venice upcoming but um you know david zwerner showing carrie james marshall yeah, I mean, and white cube is showing david hammond's yeah. um about eight african-american artists showing in galleries and museums and wangeshi mutu yeah. is showing at victoria miro i mean if, if if you go around the galleries right now you're going to see a lot of black artists mm. um um, all of whom would see themselves as to some extent or other politicized, although it's not, none of them are heavy duty didacts who are kind of campaigning on any particular thing, but, but race is a really integral part of their vision and, um, and is explored. And I mean, it's actually a really exciting week. No. Yeah. No, uh, and from really, those three, those three shows anyway, well, oh, um, thank you. Uh, but what would you make, for example, of the fact that, like, you, uh, you know, in, in the U.S. there are MFA programs where you, you can get an MFA in, in, in social practice art. I mean, how, how does that sort of interact with the market, I guess? Is, is, was, uh... um, um, usually the artists um, or the museums fostering that are desperately looking for patrons, actually. And luckily there are uh, politicized patrons. They're not... Um, they are kind of few and far between, <laughs> um, can, you know, but, uh, you know, Elizabeth Sackler West, for example, is a, a patron who's, um, um, funded a whole kind of feminist wing at the Brooklyn Art Museum. And, um, then there's a Canadian called, um, Michael O'Dane, who's, um, fostering an Aboriginal art biennial. 
you know, there's, um, and, uh, you know, Suzanne Lacey has a famous course out at Otis, which is uh, a, a social practice. I mean, there's, how many of them are there in the U.S.? About five or six? No one in the U.S. They are all in the U.S. Yeah, that's interesting. A lot of, I think a lot of the artists in those programs are kind of grassroots activists and perhaps are not necessarily represented by galleries. You might know better than me. On that topic, I wondered um, about the more successful Western artists who you, uh, among them, who, who you interview, how do they see their social role? Uh, uh, well, you know, someone like Jeff Koons talks about acceptance and hoping that people will accept their cultural background in the kind of very slippery terms. I don't think he's someone who takes his social responsibilities very seriously, <laughs> but he interestingly has a kind of rhetoric of social responsibility, which suggests that somewhere in him he thinks he should have it, or he knows that the art world thinks he'll have it. Um, someone like Gabriel Roscoe, who has a very successful career in the market, he's represented by Marion Goodman and um, sells incredibly well. He also has a strong sense of social responsibility in terms of like how the work is made. Um, you know, he doesn't want to be exploitative to assistance. And actually, sometimes it can be, um, one does hear stories about how exploitative that situation can be. And I guess he, having been brought up in a communist uh, household does not want to be a spokesperson for politics and doesn't want to is quite very keen to distance himself from that responsibility but at the same time doesn't want to be completely irresponsible either mm. i mean i think that um the art world is a general uh, likes to think of itself as apolitical and as not a heavily politicized place despite the you know odd mfa and social activism you know, which is why it made sense to me to put a couple of like artists who don't seem to have a politics in my politics section <laughs> to kind of reveal a, an invisible politics. Um, it, it was interesting to look at the reception of Ai Weiwei's retrospective at the Hirshhorn Museum in Washington, D.C., because um, there were quite a few responses, like from Roberta Smith in the New York Times and Peter Sheldahler in the New Yorker, where they kind of questioned um, that he was an artist at all, actually, because he was so politically involved, and asked questions like, I mean, is he an artist or is he an activist? Is he a politician? And um, yeah, so there is a very strong uh, kind of art for art's sake uh, discourse in the art world, especially in the American art world, but also here in Britain, oh. don't you think? Um, and actually, in the, in Britain, you're more likely to kind of get overt right-wing artists, like a lot of the YBAs, no? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas uh, at least... Trace is one of them. Yeah. <laughs> Um, whereas in the U.S. there is a sense that, you know, if you're a Republican, you should be keep quiet about it. It's <laughs> <laughs> one question. Just How does someone like um, Santiago Sierra fit into this as, in terms of the market, too? 
Okay, I have never interviewed him. I sat across from him at dinner once, and it was such an appalling experience I didn't want to interview him. He is really an aggressive character, and actually I find some of his work so painfully exploitative that it makes me sick. Um, one of, I'll just to give you an example, for those who don't know Santiago Serra, he, one of his works is he paid three prostitutes in heroin, to have a tattoo line across their back. I mean, he he tattooed their back for the equivalent of about 60 pounds. It's just, I I just, that goes, you know, my ethics are violated by that kind of work. So, I mean, he, some people think he's very cool. And at the Venice Biennale, you know, 10 years ago or nine years ago, he boarded, he kind of blocked up the Spanish pavilion and you could only get in to see it if you had a Spanish passport. And, you know, uh, yes. So I'm not a fan. I'm not really a fan of his work. And um, having had the unfortunate experience of being sitting across from it at dinner, I'm not a fan of him as a person either. (laughs) Okay. On that note, <laughs> the story it couldn't have been cheerier. <laughs> thank you all so much for coming, and thank you, Isaac, for both being in the book and showing up here tonight to well, grace us with your pleasure. Uh, Absolute pleasure. You know. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.